We're going to talk about the dedication of the temple this evening. Actually, try and get through all 66 verses of the chapter. So put your seatbelt on. Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing this evening. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus this evening. And, Father, we're grateful to you for your grace upon us. Father, you know who we are, Lord. And, Lord, we pray that you would breathe life into the Scripture, Father, into your word, that, Father, you would speak to each of our hearts, Lord, that you would reveal the secrets of men's hearts, Lord. And, and Father, do according to your will and your purpose in this gathering as your Spirit leads and directs us. We love you. And, Father, we pray for your blessing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 8. A couple of scriptures to preface the stuff we're going to talk about this evening. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 26, tells us the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Bible teaches us that God is everywhere. The theological term for that is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And although we understand the practical concept, we understand what that means, that God is everywhere, wherever we are, he's there. As time passes, leaky vessels that we are, instead of becoming more and more aware of God's presence with us, we start to get less and less aware and we start to act more like God is nowhere instead of that he's everywhere. Scripture speaks about the presence of God in some interesting ways. As an example, Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself into the, appear in the presence of God for us. So the scripture sets forth this idea that even though God is omnipresent, it seems that a person can actually be more in God's presence or, or less. If you can be more in God's presence, then evidently you can be a little bit less in God's presence, which actually, if you want to spend some time thinking about it, may have more to do with the way that you are with him than where you are or aren't. It's pretty obvious in the scripture that my understanding of God's presence has a huge impact upon who I am and, and what I do. As long as I am powerfully mindful of the fact that God is present with me in the most practical way, has a dramatic impact on the things that I do and the way that I am and the way that I act around people, you know, uh, the way that I hold other people like, hey, you can't do that here. Well, why not? Well, you know, if I'm powerfully aware of God's presence, he's going to be offended. Don't, don't be talking like that around here. God, understanding this idea of the need that we have to be connected with him, all the way through from the beginning of time, has made a point of making his presence evident with us. Exodus 29.45 says, I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will be their God. But how? How is he going to dwell among us? In, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, in the first three chapters, there's some good reasons to believe that there may have been a specific place in the Garden of Eden where they, after the fall, where they offered sacrifice, where they had communion with God, and a situation where the presence of God could have its, its greatest possible effect upon them, something that we really need. We need the presence of God to have a powerful effect upon who we are. Something, I mean, we need more than a lot of stuff. We need more than a football team or more than lower gas prices or more than health care insurance or more than air, more than life. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, 
the greatest possible effect of God's presence is life. 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And this is so important that we understand there's a lot of opposition against this issue of God's presence being pronounced and evident to us. How does God deal with this issue through the ages? How does God overcome this opposition, the distraction? Because, I, you know, I think at least since the invention of television, we've all got ADHD. You know, we're all like, what, what, squirrel? You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, the, our foolishness, our ignorance, the world's corruption, how does God connect with us in spite of that? And that's really the challenge for us to be connected to God according to his plan. You know, you have God working with Adam and Eve, and he's got a good thing going, and then Cain is born, and Cain's worse than the other two. I mean, he's the first child born. He's a murderer. It's terrible. So bad that by the time we get to Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So we have a flood. There's a flood. God wipes out the population of the entire planet, and we have Noah, rest. Noah's name means rest. And, but then, of course, after Noah, you wind up with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham isn't kosher. And, you know, Japheth isn't kosher either, actually, just Shem. And so we work our way through that mess for a while, and we get to Abraham. And by the time we get to Abraham, the world is a mess. I mean, Abraham's parents live five maybe 600 miles from where the ark landed on top of Mount Ararat. And yet they're all idol worshipers. They're all worshiping false gods down in Ur of the Chaldees down there. And yet God finds Abraham. Abraham is a very unique and special person, very special person. In fact, let me read to you Genesis 18, 19, something God says about Abraham. He says, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken of him. God has such confidence in Abraham that he's going to command his children, and after he's gone, they're going to do what he says. That's amazing. Most people's kids won't do what they say in front of them. So we have Abraham, and then, of course, the fathers, Isaac and Jacob, and 430 years in Egypt, we wind up with Moses, and aha, wait, we get to Mount Sinai and the law, and the tablets of the law. So there were specific directions for God's people before the law. We don't have them detailed in the book of Genesis specifically, but there are inclinations here and there. But folks, we are so feeble. We don't really operate in the spiritual world the way that we we need to. We live in a physical world. What do they say? The way to a man's heart is, is through his stomach, depending on the age of the man, of course. We need something physical to connect us, like the tablets of the law, like the Ark of the Covenant. Bingo, connection, reminder. People look at that. They seize upon it. God is here. Yes, great. Anytime you have a physical manifestation of God, there's a huge benefit for people being able to connect to what's going on. But there's also a potential problem. And God knows about this. People get distracted by physical things and they start to focus on physical things. C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters about the person whose God is the spot off to the left of his bed on the ceiling. God, help me. And, you know, and you, you get the idea. People are distracted. We, we don't relate to God who is who he knows himself to be instead of who we understand him to be. Um, the Shroud of Turin. People forget all about Jesus and worship the Shroud of Turin. We don't know who was buried in that thing. Gracious, or if it's, I mean, if real or legitimate. But God is so smart. He gives us the tablets of the law, but people can't worship him. Why? Can't see them. They're inside the ark. Well, then people worship the ark. Well, then you can't see the ark. Why? Because it's inside the tabernacle. You never can see the ark. Even if they walked around with it on the poles, the Levites, it had a big cover over it. You couldn't actually see it. And then all the other 
paraphernalia of the, the tabernacle, you know, the altar of incense, the menorah, the showbread, the brazen altar. All these things were inside the tabernacle complex. Kind of hard to worship a tent, even if it's a really nice tent. Did the children of Israel see themselves as connected to God because of the ark? Yes, you bet they did. They picked it up and they took it into battle with them, didn't they? And the Philistines, and, uh, which raises, of course, another problem. When your connection to God is wandering around the country, things, bad things can happen. I mean, it was necessary during the Exodus, but it stayed in Shiloh until 1 Samuel chapter 4, which point the Philistines got a hold of it for a brief, brief period of time. Um, it remained in First uh, Samuel 7, 2 tells us it was in Kirjath-Jerim for a long time, maybe 20 years. And then in 1 Samuel 14, Saul calls for a hijah the prophet to bring the ark of God to him. We know it was kept in Nob for a while until Saul had all the priests and the families of the priests killed. And then it was in a couple of different places until King David, very important, King David, was finally able as the Lord directed him to bring it up to the area of Jerusalem, to the threshing floor of Arnah, the Jebusite, the place where it was to be and where eventually the temple will be built. David was a visionary. He saw a lot of things. He even saw things he shouldn't have seen. He understood the need for stability in worship. And God is very stable, folks. When we worship, when worship isn't stable, It's not his fault. We're to blame. David recognized God directing. He wanted to build the temple, but it wasn't God's plan for David to do the building. God had another plan. Nathan gave the Lord's word to him. Actually, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, which is a double prophecy for Solomon and for Jesus Christ. So David began to collect all the necessary material. Solomon oversaw the actual building of the temple. And here in 1 Kings chapter 8, in the first seven verses, we have the details of the event after the period of time that Solomon has taken, the building's been completed. And this is the complete account of the dedication. So look with me, if you will, at 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. There all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast of the month of Ethanim, which is in the seventh month. So all the leaders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up and also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark. The ark of the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. And when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt... King Solomon assembled the men of Israel at the feast in the seventh month, sacrificing all these sheep, turns into a national barbecue. Huge amounts of food for everybody who's going to be present. The priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim that they had constructed, overlaid with gold in that place. And it says in verse 8 that they are there to this day. You could actually see the poles from inside the holy place. And this is probably dated to the late 7th century B.C. prior to the fall of Jerusalem with Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing was in the ark except two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at 
at uh, Mount Sinai. I don't know how they knew that. Somebody had to look. Somebody had to be pretty brave. The last time that somebody looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, after they got it back from the Philistines, 50,070 men died. So somebody was very brave. In verse 10, it came to pass that when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Solomon had to be flipping out. I mean, this, this project was his passion of his life. And he knew that the Lord's hand was upon it. And now everybody could see the Lord's hand was upon this issue. You know, dedications are important things. They make for really good starts. They really do. A a wedding, for instance, great dedication, great opportunity for a good start. Bad excuse for a party. Bad starts are hard to overcome. Took the people years to get over Saul. A dedication can be nothing more than a big dog and pony show, or it can be much, much more than that. It can be the resolution of the heart. And this is what God is looking for, folks. The resolution of the heart. The the outward is fine. You go to church? Good. Are you being the church? Much better. Much better. It is who I am when nobody is watching that really matters, isn't it? Almost, almost nobody watching, that is. The people here with the temple, they have an enduring place to be connected with God. When we understand how present God is, folks, it really blows our mind. It does. I don't think ever in my life as a believer in Christ I've been dramatically aware of God's presence with me and not been brought to tears. You know, it's a very powerful thing. When you're really aware of how present God is with you, when you know that he's there and that he's working in your life, it is an overwhelming thing. You look at, I mean, Jacob in Genesis 28. He woke up from this dream about the ladder and the Lord impressed upon him. that He said he was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place? It is none other than the house of God. It is the gate of heaven. In verse 12, here in 1 Kings 8, Then Solomon spoke. The Lord, he said, would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand fulfilled it, saying, since the day that I brought my people out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my my name might be there but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. He quotes uh, the account of God in the cloud at Mount Sinai, blesses the people, verses 14 and 15, giving them basically the Reader's Digest condensed version of God's plan for the nation from Moses through his father, not mentioning Saul at all, of course, and how this day is the fulfillment of God's plan. Here in verse 20, so the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have Fill the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, the real meat and potatoes of this dedication is Solomon's prayer to the Lord. And in that prayer, starting verse 22, we get a real detailed look at Solomon's vision for the building, 
that the Lord laid upon his heart to put together. It's also interesting that he specifically mentions no other place has the Lord selected. If you watch current events, you watch the news, you're hearing all of this dialogue about the city of Jerusalem over and over and over, and how the United States essentially refuses to acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. This is a new wrinkle for us. Uh, in previous administrations, we pretty much acknowledged Jerusalem as the, the perpetual capital of Israel. But now they are refusing to acknowledge Jerusalem on U.S. passports as the capital of Israel, which is tacit or de facto failure to acknowledge the Jerusalem. And, and it's not an accident, folks. It's all spiritual warfare because this is the city that the Lord has chosen from all of the cities of Israel. This is the place that he's designated as the dwelling place for his name to be. And we, we haven't seen the last of this drama yet. Again, <coughs> the introduction to the prayer of Solomon is verses 22 through 30. Verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence, that would be the brazen altar outside the building, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and your mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 6, which is a parallel passage to this, another account of the same event, tells us that he had a bronze platform built for this occasion. As we get to the end of the chapter, you will find that he has been on his knees with his hands outstretched all during this prayer. People did not routinely pray on their knees. Look throughout the scripture for situations. They are more rare than you might think because it's so common for us today to talk about being, kneeling and praying, but people often prayed to the Lord standing. Solomon was on his knees praying to the Lord, humbling himself before the Lord during this entire dedication. In this beginning, Solomon acknowledges that there is no other God like the Lord in heaven or on earth. And it kind of it reminded me of the way in which Jesus instructs his disciples to address the Lord in prayer in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, acknowledging where God is and who he is, that he is holy, that he is different in, in every way than we are. Solomon says the Lord is completely unique. And why? Why is he? Because he keeps his word. In verse 23, You who keep your covenant and mercy. Notice as we go through this prayer, folks, the constant references to God's requirement, his covenant, his agreement, and forgiveness and mercy. Solomon always includes the necessity of forgiveness and God's goodness to overlook our many failures. In verse 24, he says, You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hands as it is this day. He says the same thing back in verse 15. He kept his promise to David. First John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What we say we should do, spoken with our mouth, executed with our hands. Why do we want to do that? Because God does it, and we want to be like him. We want to follow his example. Look at verse 25. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you have promised your servant David, my father saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. He pleads to the Lord to keep 
the promise to David sustaining the dynasty, which, of course, Solomon himself is going to fall short of maintaining. Solomon acknowledges before the Lord that this building is not that significant to the Lord. You know, it's a hard thing for people, men especially, I think, to see the limitations of their efforts. You know, uh, people that are devoted to something, building something, whether it's a business or a, a building or whatever the case may be. And this is really, at this point in Solomon's life, this is the project of his life. And yet, right here in this prayer, as he's acknowledging the Lord's presence, he, he, the first thing out of his mouth, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built. This building is not really going to contain your presence, Lord. Solomon is a very wise man. Very wise man. In verse 27, you know, how much less? And he's really showing humility here by acknowledging the limitations of this building that he's in before the people. He could have gone privately off to the Lord and talked to him. I know you know, Lord, you're really not going to dwell in this. But in front of the whole nation, he freely acknowledges that this building cannot contain God. In verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord, my God. Listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place, and may hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear forgive. So important. In spite of the insignificance of this building, Lord, regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord, my God, listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. Solomon uses three different words specifically to refer to prayer throughout this prayer. One is a word for prayer that can also mean intercession or praise. One is a word that is specifically a plea for mercy to the Lord. And the other, the third word is really to cry out, to cry out to God. And, you know, they all have different specific purposes. And, you know, when I, when I think of crying out, it reminds me of David's words in Psalm 61. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you, O Lord, when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And when there's nowhere else to go, you cry out to God. You lift up your voice to him. Solomon says, let your eyes be open to this place day and night. Hear our prayers. In verse 30, the prayers of your servant and your people. Folks, as Solomon prays before the nation and seeks the Lord, it seems pretty evident to me that he's not here to serve himself. He is here to serve the people of God. He is here to serve the Lord. And he has a proper sense of that in his mind. I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand that the time that they spend with God is an opportunity to be of service to others. People come to church and they walk out empty. If you come to church with the intention of receiving for yourself, you're going to leave here empty. If you come to church with the intention of being used by the Lord to help somebody else, to serve someone else, or to worship the Lord, give yourself, to seriously give yourself to God, then you're going to walk out the door filled. And the same thing is true of your relationship with the Lord every single day of your life. The more intent you are upon receiving the blessing for yourself, the less fulfilled you're going to be. The more purposeful you are in seeing your life as a vessel and a vehicle to be used for the benefit of others, the more you are going to be filled to overflowing. And this is, this is God's intention. And Solomon's got a hold of this thing in a powerful way. He understands prayer is not about me. Prayer is not about me. It's about me being an opportunity for God to bless others. 
Solomon looks suspiciously like Jesus in this situation, one that expends himself for the benefit of others. He reminds the Lord, Lord, you said, my name shall be there. Where God's name is, folks, is the place where we connect with God, where his name is. Here in heaven, and when you hear, forgive. Key verse for the whole chapter, right there in verse 30. From verses 31 through verse 54, the rest of the bulk of Solomon's prayer, there are seven distinct sections that he offers on behalf of prayer. First of all, the prayer for civil justice in verse 31. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Lord, connect with us when we sin against each other. Hear when we take vows and bring justice. I love the language in verse 32. Bring his way upon his own head. That is sowing and reaping. You know, folks, there's no justice in this world. Apart from the Lord, there is no justice. Courts of law, I mean, courts of law may actually institute justice by accident sometime. It may happen, but certainly not by the designs of men, because we don't know. We put innocent people in prison. We let guilty people go. Happens all the time. Because we create this framework we call the law, which normal people can't even read, to confuse and and convolute the whole situation, basically so lawyers can rule the world and take over any lawyers. I apologize, but, you know, they run everything, you know. Scott Walker's running for president, you know. He's not a lawyer, and he doesn't have a college education. I'm voting for him. Or at least I'm tempted to. I don't know. I don't want to make up my mind so early. But, you know, I mean, really, he's not an attorney. I'm all over that. That is amazing. And, I, and actually, I know some attorneys I really like. My father-in-law is an attorney. I like him, you know. <laughs> Second section of the prayer, the prayer in unsuccessful battle. What a thing. A prayer for unsuccessful battle. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, And when they turn their back to you and confess, when they turn back to you, I'm sorry, and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel. Bring them back to the land that you gave to their fathers. What a thing. Isn't it amazing? Solomon is acknowledging right before the whole nation, hey, we can go out to battle and lose. But why would we do that? Because we are in sin. Because there is some problem with us that is keeping the Lord from doing what he has intended. In warfare, amazing. Let us turn to your name in this temple and then hear and forgive. Bring us back to the land. Second Timothy 2.25 says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. Repentance and restoration. Something his dad Solomon's dad was really good at repentance, turning to God. Third section in verse 35, the prayer for relief in drought. Uh Uh-oh. And when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then here in heaven... And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that they may te- that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. And sin reigned on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Hmm. When sin brings drought on the land, and they turn to you, 
I don't know that the state of California is going to turn to the Lord. You know, I, I don't know. It is a terrible thing. And I believe that, you know, folks, we, we are under the judgment of God. And it's not just the drought. There are many other things transpiring. It seems like the floodgates have been opened for unrighteousness. I was talking to somebody who was in uh, the city of Venice down at the beach for the 4th of July. And they said that it, they thought they were in hell. They, they were just absolutely appalled at what was going on in the street. They couldn't believe it. And it's terrifying, you know. Uh, the other day I walked into Vaughn's over here and there are people standing around yelling and screaming. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm like, my goodness, I just, I don't feel at home here. I don't, don't feel safe on the streets, you know, other than the confidence that the Lord's hand is upon my life. You know, you, have, you worry about your family, your wife and your children going places. and It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world and uh, very sad. Solomon recognizes the need of discipline as corrective influence, doesn't he? He sees that God uses hardship and um, uh, even uh, difficulty for a nation, drought and, and uh, pestilence to discipline people. Oh, that we could have a little corrective discipline in the public sector, maybe even in public school. That would be great. Psalm 119 just has some amazing things to say about the influence of the word of God in bringing us to terms with our own failure. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.92 says, Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. Remember that, folks. When you're going through hard times, unless the law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The word of God gives me a perspective to be able to see God's hand at work through hardship and difficulty and to cling to him and be confident in the fact that he is working in my life in spite of the difficult things that are transpiring. The next section, the fourth section here, I like to call the prayer for whatever. (laughs) In verse 37, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew or locust, grasshoppers or when the enemy besieges them in the land or their cities or whatever plague or whatever sickness there is by whatever prayer or whatever supplication made by anyone or by all your people Israel. When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Amazing. Amazing, isn't it? Famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, enemy besieging cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness, whatever prayer, whatever supplication made by anyone or by all. Wait a minute. What is that thing that we can't pray for? No such thing. In verse 38, he says, For each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple. What a, gosh, folks, what an amazing miracle that men can come to God and seek his favor. That we can come before the Lord our God and confess our shortcomings and say, God, I'm a failure. Help me. Fix me. Show me what to do. Lead me. And be confident that he will do that. We all have different issues. Unfortunately, the truth is sometimes we are blind to our own. Our hearts become hardened and we are blind. The difficult thing is that the issues of our lives are not always going to be understood by others or even by our pastors or our closest friends can be totally unaware of what the real issue is. But God always knows, doesn't he? He 
always knows what the issue is. And that's why it is so important for us to be connected to him that we might continue to have hope in every situation. See, folks, we don't know what the future holds. We really don't. And I look at the, yeah, I look at the calendar, you know, and months and years just fly by, and I'm looking at January of, of 2017, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know if we're going to make it that far. I, really, I don't know. You know, the Lord knows. We don't know what the whole future holds, but we know We know who holds the future. In verse 39, he says, Here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, you alone know the hearts of men. To what end? For what purpose? In verse 40, that they may fear you. Notice the same outcome that Jacob had back in Genesis 28 when he recognized the presence of God. He was moved with awe, the fear of the Lord. Because when we recognize his presence with us, we remember that he alone knows our hearts. The fifth section of the prayer here, the prayer, and this is so amazing, guys, the prayer for the non-Jewish person in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of Solomon's dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, the prayer for the non-Jewish person. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and of your strong hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Amazing. Why is this temple here? One of the reasons is for the foreigner from a far country who has heard the name of the Lord. So God can connect with the non-Jewish people. And when they seek to hear, that God will hear their prayer. Why? That all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you. You know, I think about this and I think, I wonder if Solomon would have attacked the Apostle Paul for bringing a Greek into the temple, which he did not do, by the way. He did not bring a non-Jewish person into the temple. He was accused of that in Acts chapter 21. But the first century Jews wanted to see him killed. Doesn't sound like Solomon had that same idea, does it? In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, Isaiah, by the word of the Lord, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This was always God's plan to use the nation of Israel as a springboard to bring the world to him, to bring the world to Christ, to the person of the Messiah, because in him the Gentiles shall hope. The sixth division of this prayer, the prayer for protection in battle. Verse 44, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward this city you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause as you direct your people to war. And he does. Exodus 15 verse 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And you know, we are going to see more war in Israel especially. And it is wonderful to know that as the Israeli soldiers, even without the support of the almighty United States, as they cry out to the Lord, God will deliver their enemies into their hands. He will sustain them. He will protect those school children from the missiles being launched from Gaza and from Syria and other places. And he will bless and care for them as we cry out to the Lord on their behalf. James chapter 1 verse 20 says, The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's true. Absolutely true. Neither are we going to usher in the kingdom by negotiation. No, that ain't going to happen either. God does send people to war for righteous purposes, to protect the innocent, 
to thwart the intention of evil men. And these men of war pray to your name. And let me tell you, folks, nobody prays like a soldier. Nobody prays like a soldier. There are no atheists in foxholes. I heard recently a young man from our church who is currently in Afghanistan, very disturbed and distraught because there is no Christian fellowship. There is no biblical teaching from any of the chaplains represented over there. Uh, Chaplains in the military have been dramatically inhibited from using the Bible and representing the name of Jesus Christ in the services that they do. Now, I guarantee you the Muslim chaplains in the U.S. Army are free to use the Koran at will and to invoke the name of Allah as they see fit. But Christian chaplains are dramatically inhibited, which again is evidence of the situation of our present administration in this nation. God help us to January 2017. Pray for this young man. His name's Eugene. He's in Afghanistan. Pray for young men and women in service all over the world. The Lord would touch their hearts and bring them to the truth. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a brother who was stationed at um, Camp Pendleton down here. And apparently at Camp Pendleton, they have really great worship services. They have teams from different Calvary chapels that come in and put together worship. And they have great Bible studies. And if that were only the case in other parts of the world where people are far from home. So few people pray. And folks, it is so important for us to be diligent to lift up those in uniform, that their actions would glorify God, to protect the innocent, to defend their lives, to care for their families in their absence, that the Lord would bless them. Finally, the seventh section of this prayer in verse 46, prayer for those who are taken captive to a distant land. Why would he pray for his people that they might be taken captive to a distant distant land. I mean, other than the fact that it was going to happen. In verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. What a great thing for the king in prayer before the nation to say, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, And with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. When your people are delivered and taken. He says, just like Jesus' quote from the prodigal son. And when they come to themselves, what am I doing? I've sinned against God. When their mind returns to them. Pray this for your teenagers that they would come to themselves, that they would recognize, wait a minute, what am I doing? Recognize that God is real, that he is here. God brings consequences upon those who act contrary to his purpose. God invented pain. Figure it out. Think about it. He didn't invent pain for a bad thing. He wants you to learn. Don't put your hand up on top of the stove. Ah, Don't do that. That's why he invented pain. We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness when they return you with all their heart and their soul in the land of their enemies. Pray toward their land. 
toward the city that you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name. Here, forgive, grant them compassion. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel, in his upper room, with the windows open toward Jerusalem, knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God, as was his custom since early days. In verse 46, for there is no one who does not sin. You know, God is so good, folks. Biblical theology is so fragile. The Bible is 66 books, 66 distinct and separate books written over a period of 1,500 or so years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. It's one story, one message, the fall and the redemption of mankind by the hand of God. It just would take one writer to make a huge mistake to mess up the theology of the scripture. And it's, it's not there. The Holy Spirit of God has overseen it so detailed. There is no one who does not sin. For some reason, it seems that Solomon understood Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Ephesians 1.18 The Apostle Paul prays for us that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint. In verse 52, Solomon prays for God's eyes to be open to us as he closes this prayer dedication, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Look upon us, Lord. Hear our prayers. You have chosen us from among all the people of the world as your possession. In verse 54, And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer, and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees and with his hands spread open to heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There's not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. See, when did God mess up? When did he fall down on the job? When did, he, when did God let you down? There has not failed one word from all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. You know, sometimes when you talk to people, you get the impression it's just kind of a hit or miss thing with God. Well, I don't know if God's going to, you know, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. You know, how do, we, how do we get the children of Israel in the wilderness syndrome? You know, ah, that's right, he brought us out here to kill us. We knew it. That's it. You laugh. But hey, when things go sideways, you know, I'll never get another job. I'll never. I know. I know now. I wasn't qualified for that. I'm never going to get another job. God's not going to take care of me. Has he brought you this far for nothing? No. No. He has a purpose for you. It's not about you. It's about you being a blessing to others. And he wants to do that in the worst way or the best way, I guess. We get that idea because we're disconnected. One of the reasons that our devotional lives, our time in prayer, our time reading the scripture, our time with believers is so urgent that there would be no division between God and his people. When God's people operate, operate like they're on their own, we get golden calves. We get instability. We get confusion. Verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our father. Solomon is so wise. He knows the hardness of men's hearts. And if our hearts are not inclined to the Lord, we may be well-meaning, but we're just going through the motions. If it's not from our heart, God, help us. And we need to pray for that. God, soften my heart. Let me hear your voice. Instruct me in your way. I don't want to go through the motions. 
I want to be sincere toward you in all that I do. Sometimes as a disciple, and the word disciple is just like discipline. It's what disciples do. They discipline themselves. As a disciple, you have to go through the motions until the Lord inclines your heart. Sometimes I'll come into a church service and I'll sit down and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't really feel like singing. I'm just saying, I'm thinking about 150 things and going on. And I just, I don't, you know, but I know that if I stop and I focus and I start to worship and, and, and it is a sacrifice. My singing voice is not too wonderful. And there's some others here too, as well. I mean, I don't want to say anything, but depending on where you sit in the room, you can hear some pretty terrible stuff. And, and, but, but you know, you focus on the Lord and you sacrifice and, and, very shortly, your heart is inclined and the Lord begins to work and it's what you, it's what you want to do. Faith follows function sometimes. Our euphemism for, for salvation, we say giving your heart to Christ. So appropriate. You know, that's what you're doing. You're giving your heart to Christ for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He mentions his commandments and his statutes and his judgments in verse 58. He can't have your heart if you don't have his word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. All Solomon does in this prayer, folks, basically, is remind God of his word. Step by step, point by point, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In verse 59 And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord, our God, day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, and that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. With Jesus in Matthew 6.34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I'm amazed how evangelistic Solomon is. God gave him such a great opportunity to represent the truth. And here in verse 61, let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, keep his commandments as it is this day. Let your heart, permit your heart, allow your heart. Something that we can hinder, we can inhibit, we can marginalize, or we can expand. You know, folks, one step in the wrong direction makes this present world a lot more appealing. The world is sick. It is scary sick. But if I allow myself to be led astray, it can begin to... There there are things in the world that can be appealing to me if I allow that to happen. Can't. Can't do that. Cannot entertain that. And I need to be sensitive to the Lord to be discreet in that issue. The temple is the contact point for the people of God. It is the place where his name is. The temple is a point of contact. It was a beautiful thing that God used in wonderful ways. But there were problems. For the better part of the last 2,700 years, it has lain in ruins. Which has been a great source of confusion to the Jewish world. One of the major themes of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is helping the Jewish nation understand that the God of Israel operates just fine in other countries with or without the temple. The temple was good. It was beautiful. It was amazing. It was God's God's, part of God's plan and the law as a schoolmaster to bring people to Christ. The temple as a point of contact was where his name was. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 17, he quotes the book of Amos so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. We are not just called by his name. That phrase indicates that he is here. Matthew 123 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. That's quoting Isaiah. I don't mean the building. It's not about the building. The church is not a building. Ecclesia are those called out. It's the people. It's you. Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages, from generations now revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known 
What are the riches of the glory, the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And no, the Philistines can't take it, not even by taking our lives. They can't have it. Ephesians 2.22 says, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Folks, we need to pray. The world's coming apart. We need to pray better. We need to learn to pray. When you pray, folks, you learn about prayer. When you pray, you learn about God. And when you pray, you learn about yourself. As we pray, we need to plan to pray. If something is important to you, I mean, if something is really important in your life, you make a plan. You decide, I'm going to do this, and you, you make a plan. To, to accomplish it, we need to plan to pray. We need to dedicate time to pray. If we're just praying haphazardly whenever it happens to take place, spontaneously, nothing wrong with spontaneous prayer. But if prayer is really as important to us, as the scripture indicates, we need to dedicate time to pray. And we need to trust that God uses prayer. If you're like me, there are times when you pray and you don't walk away feeling like, wow, that was productive. You, you, seriously, though, you, you cry out to the Lord, you speak to the Lord, you don't feel any more spiritual when you're done, you don't see anything change right away. You need to trust that God uses prayer. He does. God has done so many miracles in answering your prayers, and unfortunately, the most of them you can't remember. That is sad. I know that because I know people that that's happened to. My wife. My wife. She's the one, actually. (laughs) Psalm 33, verse 14 says, From the place of his dwelling." He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he is looking at us. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your word, for the admonition Lord, that you have set before us and the encouragement, Lord, that our prayers are things of substance, Lord, that they're important. And, Father, that we need to be serious in our prayers. Father, that you have set your spirit inside of us. The scripture says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Lord, we don't understand all that that means. But, Father, the little that we do understand encourages our hearts to be diligent, to seek you earnestly. And, Father, we know that there are many people in the body here in Pasadena, Lord, that are just struggling with terrible circumstances, with illness, Lord, with financial trouble, Father, with unemployment, Lord, with trouble from family, with so many difficult legal trouble, Lord. And, Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters to you, Lord. We just cry out to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. Set your hand upon your people for good. Father, give us wisdom as we pray. Father, we lift up our brother Farshid in Iran. Also for Saeed Abdini, Lord, who is in the same prison with Farshid. Lord, that, Father, he might be released. 
that these men would be released to their families, Lord. Be gracious to them. We pray for Asiya Bibi in Pakistan, Lord, as she's in such ill health, Lord. Just be gracious to her, Father. We thank you for these people that have such bravery, Lord, to serve you in persecution. For those who are in prison here in the U.S., for the ministry, the prison ministry, Lord, anoint these men and women as they go out and represent you, Lord, and speak your truth and touch the hearts of many. Turn the hearts of people to the truth. We love you. Father, Lord, as as we pray together, if there's one person here tonight that doesn't know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, and you have a desire, you want to surrender your life, you want to give your heart to Christ, I'm going to take a moment and pray a prayer. And if the Lord has spoken to you, you can repeat this prayer after me and commit, dedicate yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for my forgiveness. I believe that he rose from the dead. Forgive me for all my sins, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Give me a new life in Jesus Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.